Well, uh, for any of you who have been closely watching the campaign, forget everything you've heard before. Uh, and uh, welcome to uh, a dose of realism, which I would say is also optimism. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and we're really happy to have the authors here of the new book, The Smartest Places on Earth, Why Rust Belts Are the Emerging Hotspots Spots of, of Global Innovation. Um, I'm Fred Kemp, President and CEO of the Atlantic Council. Thank you for joining us for this afternoon's event. And Antoine, uh, Antoine van Achtmel, uh, and Fred, and for, forgive me if that has a little bit of a German accent to it. But, um, and Fred Bacher, uh, and Fred and I knew each other when we were both in the European uh, press uh, group um, when I was running the Wall Street Journal Europe and you were running our uh, sister organization, Financiella Dachblatt. Um, and Antoine, Fred, thank you for taking the time to come here and speak with us. Uh, the book has sparked interest by denying the conventional wisdom that there is little hope for innovation in the West, especially where the manufacturing sector has atrophied and the middle class has suffered. Uh, as they state in the exposition, quote, the central idea of this book is that the revitalization of the former, uh, of, of the former Rust Belt areas is bringing new competitiveness to the United States and Europe. And you may have seen some, uh, something they've also written uh, in the Atlantic about this. By suggesting there exists a broad base ripe for innovation across America, Antoine and Fred challenge prevailing concerns over China's rising clout and fears of the West's economic decline. Uh, Bruce Katz of Brookings has noted, quote, the book upends conventional wisdom about how the gl global economy works and which places are primed uh, to, to thrive and prosper. Um, I was just saying to Antoine that I've been making an argument around the world that, um, uh, that uh, we can weather uh, poor political leadership much better than the rest of the world can because we have so much resilience and strength and societal underpinning uh, of, the, of, of the U.S. momentum. Or as John Others put it in a review article in the Financial Times about their book, quote, U.S. revival warrants EM strategy rethink. The global advantage is shifting back to American shores. Take Akron, Ohio, and Albany, New York. Both cities have fallen on hard times after forging reputations and fortunes from local manufacturing and industries of the old economy. It now seems they are poised to turn their crisis into opportunity. Far removed uh, by geography and spirit from Silicon Valley type innovation centers, these and other Rust Belt communities are nonetheless capitalizing on visionary thinkers and local universities. Uh, and building on the collaborative work and free thought cultures in Europe and the United States to develop, to develop smarter and cheaper ways of producing goods. And in the process, they are uh, revolutionizing modern American manufacturing. Akron uh, has transformed uh, from a trier manufacturing center to a leader in the polymer industry. And Albany is beginning to establish itself as a powerhouse producer of next-generation silicon chips. Antoine and Fred claim they are glimpsing new hope for revitalization in the West as, as, at a time when fears of decline and uncertainty have encouraged the rise of nationalist populists, not to mention any specific American presidential candidates uh, in the United States and far-right parties in Europe as, in a re, uh, as, in, uh, as a recent Atlantic Council report on the issue said with the title, What's Left of Europe If the Right Has Its Way? 
a very clever title. Antoine and Fred bring tremendous knowledge and experience to bear in their book. Uh, uh, it's actually interesting, I was talking and Antoine was saying that he's now looking at Europe from a distance and Fred is looking at the US from a distance. Uh, and I think by coming together, they really have unique perspectives and they bring knowledge and experience to bear. Antoine previously worked at the World Bank where among other accomplishments, he coined the term uh, emerging markets. Later, he founded and served as the CEO at Emerging Markets Management. Currently, he is a senior advisor at Garten Rothkopf, a public policy advisory firm here in Washington, D.C. He's a prolific writer and commentator on global economic issues. Uh, Fred gained great insights as a financial journalist. He previously worked at, as the editor-in-chief and CEO of the Dutch Financial uh, newspaper Het Financiale Dagblad. So now I'll turn the floor over to you, Antoine, to provide some uh, opening remarks. Thank you, so thank you, Fred and Anders, longtime friend, for inviting us here. We have been doing the rounds over the last couple of weeks, and we'll do be doing more uh, of that. And really, this is based on some very contrasting experience. Uh, New Hampshire. My son is a photojournalist, and I've basically talked him into taking me along in the press pool. And so I sit there, listen to the, to the various presidential candidates. And when some on the left and some on the right, let's, we'll no, won't go into the details, what I heard was, you know, this country has run out of steam and innovation. The best time is still to come. All we have is problems. And I think, that's not at all <laughs> what we saw. <laughs> when we traveled both in the United States and in Europe, um, visiting some more than a dozen of these places, talking to hundreds and hundreds of, of university um, presidents, uh, uh, entrepreneurs in startups, uh, legacy uh, corporate uh, executives, we got a very different message. And it contrasted very much, and if you hear, the, presidential candidates, worse uh, than uh, since uh, um, uh, you know, presidential candidates 30 years ago, talk about this. We heard, like complaining, we heard a very different complaint. For example, when I and Fred also on a trip of his were in Asia. What we heard there was just the opposite. What we heard there was a complaint about American competition. Now, I have to say, I've been visiting there for over 30 years. I nearly dropped off my chair. I coined the word emerging markets. I thought, you know, things are going <laughs> well. They had a real problem. And it was labor costs. It was shale gas. But the most important thing was uh, really they couldn't keep up with American R&D. So let's now go. Because I think what the presidential candidates are doing is they're looking in the rear view mirror. And what do you see in the rear view mirror? Well, in the rear view mirror, you see, basically, we lost 7 million jobs. By the way, nobody talks about the 4.4 million jobs that we gained in high-tech uh, industries. And nobody talks about the fact that it's beginning to reverse at the moment. In fact, we have gained uh, quite a few manufacturing jobs. And of course, this was caused by competition from my emerging markets but also from automation, of course, and this terrible 2008 crisis. So this is not the whole story. 
What I want you to come away with is our conviction, and as I said, based on literally three years of research, that the United States, and for that matter, Northern Europe, are not on the decline. No. In fact, they are regaining competitiveness. And you, of course, ask why. Well, there's a new paradigm. For the last 25 years, what were we trying to do? We were, in effect, trying to outcompete places like China by trying to make things as cheap as possible. Well, that era is over. It's over here, but it's also over in China because they are no longer that cheap. It was the wrong approach. What we have learned from that, and this is what we'll be doing in the next 25 years, is to make things as smart as possible. Manufacturing is not, your father's manufacturing is not coming back, no. In fact, it's being reinvented. Now, this is based on two pillars. The first pillar is what we call sharing brain power. Now, this seems very simple when it's actually very difficult. We learned this, by the way, from places like, I call them the whippersnappers, in, in uh, Silicon Valley and Cambridge, who learned that universities had something to contribute when it came to working together with young entrepreneurs and also legacy businesses. So it's a sharing of brain power of these three different groups. Uh, in the past and today, the type of innovation, the style of innovation was very different and the modern innovation is much more efficient or as I, I, efficient is not the right word, it works better. It used to be hierarchical, now it's collegial. It used to be closed, IP-oriented, now it is open. And we have lots of examples of that. It used to be siloed, now it is multidisciplinary. Uh, Shirley Jackson, the president of, of Rensselaer, told me one morning, she said, you know, nothing is being invented anymore within academic departments. It's all invented between academic departments. And mind you, it's invented between universities and businesses and startups. It's no longer top-down, but it's bottom-up. It's no longer you know, in the garage. No, it's collaborative. And it's no longer done in suburban, isolated research lab, but in urban innovation centers. So it's very different. So that's one. Second is, and here this is back to this manufacturing, it's not about manufacturing anymore. We are literally creating a whole new branch of the economy based on the old industrial expertise, but what we add now is modern production methods. It's new materials. It's uh, new discoveries. And we tie that all together. We integrate with that with the areas that we are strong at information technology, uh, wireless, uh, uh, big data. And this is all connected through sensors. And mind you, it is, it's the left brain and the right brain are connected through design. So that's the new branch of the economy, creating smart new products that we need for this century, just as the Industrial Revolution created products for the 19th century. The future, we believe, is all about connecting and connectedness. The smart car. You might think, well, that's cute. No, the self-driving car will bring about a revolution in transportation. Wearables will do a lot to healthcare. Smart grid, smart farming, 
Uh, Fred can talk about that later. The key is no longer cheap, but smart. And you know, if you take these new production methods, like a new generation of robots, here you see Rodney Brooks at, at MIT, or uh, Jody Simona, who has uh, seen how you can make a 3D printer. You know, 3D printers are slow as molasses. Well, you can make them go a thousand times faster. So you can use them in production. Uh, a whole new way of battery making. What is that doing? What is that doing is it will be possible again to make socks. The New York Times just wrote about that. Shoes, shirts, again, in the United States. My wife didn't believe this story, okay? She said, eh. And I said, well, how, what would it be like if you could go into the store, have your foot, your two feet me measured, you always complain about you know, it not fitting and getting them delivered and they are exactly right. She said, then I believe you. I said, well, it's happening. Uh, and it, it, you know, this is the future of the economy. So now the interesting thing is that this is not just happening in Cambridge and uh, in uh, Silicon Valley, no. There are now over 30, actually 35, um, brain belts, as we call them, all over the country, and 15 in Europe, as I'll show you on the map in a second. And Akron, Ohio, you all know. Would you say this is one of the smartest places on Earth? Probably wouldn't immediately come to mind. And of course, they were faced with a life-threatening crisis. The big four tire companies, gone, practically overnight. Uh, then came in a connector, Luis Puenza, Mexican descent, president of the university. He brought the university out of the ivory tower. He created contacts. And what he realized was that what Akron capped was its world-class, and I mean world-class, research on polymers, which are on, at the basis of anything from lipstick to whatever. And so now they're making uh, tires that adjust to road circumstances and the weather because of sensors. Uh, coatings that change steel. Uh, and by the way, save a, a percent and a half on GDP. That's a lot, uh, that's a big number. Um, contact lenses that, that change color when you have diabetes. I mean, artificial hips, thousands of new uh, products and there are a thousand little polymer companies in the Akron region that employ more people than the four big tire companies. That's the difference. So what makes a brain belt, a life-threatening situation? Key to it all is universities. Without universities, this doesn't work. Uh, basically, a, a commitment to solve the problems that we have now, which are complex and expensive uh, with a multidisciplinary approach that requires an openness to sharing brain power. It also requires a connector and it requires an infrastructure, and we're not terribly good at that, that attracts and retains top talent. There are lots of problems here which we'll get to. Uh, and it requires cheap housing. And finally, of course, venture capital. Albany, you already mentioned it earlier. Albany, I thought, was a dump. Uh, now, well, they have a spanking new uh, uh, nanotechnology center led by a former Christian militia fighter from Lebanon who is a brilliant physicist. And uh, 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 the former Governor Cuomo, uh, not the current, uh, put in a billion dollars. Business put in $40 billion there. And what's the result? Samsung, TSMC, um, uh, Intel all work together to bring us to the forefront of the next phase of semiconductors. Here you see uh, uh, the machine. That machine costs over a billion dollars. 
and it is the first machine in the world that makes 400 millimeter wafers for silicon, uh, for silicon, um, for uh, silicon chips. Uh, the Research Triangle Park in, in North Carolina, Bob Giolas, who is the connector. Nearby, you had the old Lucky Strike factory. Look at it now. It's an incubator full of life, vibrant. Uh, these are the changes that we're seeing in Portland, Oregon, the old waterfront. Uh, Phil Knight came in, gave a lot of money. Now, they brought down the university from the mountain, connected it with Intel. Now, you have tramways connecting them to the town and uh, of course, uh, a, a picture of a bicycle, which my, makes my Dutch heart warm. Um, finally, Eindhoven, which we can talk about later. Here you saw the old Philips, was known as the town of Philips. Now, it is probably, in terms of open innovation, the most uh, forward-looking in the world. Fred will talk about that later. 30 of these rust belts in the United States, not one or two or three. This is not just some little phenomenon. This is all over the country, as you can see, and it's not just at the coast. It's all so in the heartland of the United, of the United States. And, and by the way, in Europe, in places that you might not expect it, Dresden, Lund, Ulu in Finland, Zurich and Eindhoven in, in Holland, for example. So rust belt cities are building on forgotten strength, and they're creating the smart products that the 21st century demands. Now, this is a think tank, so a few quick policy recommendations, otherwise you would feel cheated. Um, and we can talk about this later. The first problem is we are still measuring a 20th century economy, uh, sorry, a 21st century economy with 20th century statistics. And everybody knows it. And Solo already told us uh, 30 years ago. We have to stop doing this. We have to you know, stop measuring productivity. If, if you go to the opera and, uh, and it goes into the GDP and then you do your Google search and it doesn't, there's something wrong with that picture. And that's what is actually happening. So that is the first thing. The second is we need to not focus just on job losses. We have to focus on the fact that there's a huge skill gap, 5 million people in 2020. And we can learn something from Germany there. Of course, we can reward sharing our brain power through directing grants, support and build innovation districts. We desperately need to keep our basic research, of which the United States still has two-thirds of the world's. And we have to give venture capitalists the leeway. So that's basically uh, the story. And yes, I am not pessimistic. Quite the opposite. I think the future of this country is actually quite Bright, thank you very much. And, and uh, there's a lot uh, that is being done to again bring us uh, further and we are at the cusp of a whole new wave of innovation. So um, winter is over in America. We can spring just see around the corner. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Antoine. This was uh, <laughs> quite an impressive uh, performance and uh, uh, <coughs> uh, very convincing uh, point. There are some, some uh, more chairs. Uh, chairs here in France, so please uh, come in. Those of you are standing I'm in so the back. I'm so glad to see young people here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, of course there are many uh, questions that uh, come up, and uh, I should start turning to you, uh, Fred, first uh, about this. 
-hmm. And the first question is obviously, what's wrong with China? Why uh, uh, is uh, China not doing this? Or is it that China has one third of the patents in the world now in recent years, according to the World Intellectual Property Organization, and the US only one quarter, and Europe is doing quite poorly in this regard? Uh, <clears throat> China is undoubtedly, uh, there are very intelligent people. Uh, there is a uh, ambition to, uh, to, to turn from uh, making things uh, cheap to making them smart. But uh, you must have what we learned during our trip. You must have the freedom of thought. You must have the freedom to ask questions. So simple. And in China, uh, those who have been there know that uh, you don't ask questions. You listen to the one who's leading the group. And uh, they have to change that culture. That's the most important Most thing. of the innovation comes from weird people who do not think inside the box, which are very good at in China, who think outside the box. So China, and, and I'm a great admirer of China, but China is getting toward a, a glass ceiling. And the glass ceiling is without basically letting people breathe in their thinking. It's hard to get to the knowledge economy that they desperately want to get to. And so they're no longer the manufacturing center of the world. They're now just a manufacturing center of the world. Let me give you an example yeah. of the sharing of brain power and, and that asking of questions. When I uh, interviewed the chief technology officer of Fokker, there's a Dutch uh, builder of, of parts of aircraft, uh, he told me the next anecdote. A big client is Boeing. And Boeing is used to uh, uh, say to their suppliers, well, I want this uh, to be changed in this and this way. And he did, did it also with people from Fokker, the engineers from Fokker. And the engineers of Fokker uh, put the next question. They asked, why are you changing your engine or your fuselage or, or, or something else in, in the airplane. And they were flabbergasted, people of Boeing. They never uh, expected that their uh, suppliers would ask questions. And after a couple of years, they saw that those people who were asking questions were not critical in the sense that they didn't believe what uh, Boeing wanted, but they wanted to understand what Boeing wanted, but m because maybe there was an other way to reach that goal. And uh, so they wanted to become owner of the problem. And that's essential in that whole process of sharing brain power, that people get committed in, in, in the whole project. Uh, by the way, to avoid confusion, this is spelled F-O-K-K-E-R. Um, <laughs> what <Okay>. we learned. <laughs> What we do, do? You can misunderstand the way I speak English. Double interpretation. Well, it was very interesting. You know, I mean, how many of you here know that the United States has a monopoly on pacemakers? We're the only people who make pacemakers. There's a Chinese company, but not many people want to have a, a, a Chinese pacemaker. And and what we learned at Medtronic was they have spent a lot of money on 
R and D. No, actually, they do a lot of D, and they buy all their R. Johnson Johnson, same thing. We found that everywhere, going to Ulu, going to Lund. It is, this is for uh, the younger uh, people in this room, it's you who invent all this stuff. And then someone else buys it from you. Because uh, to, to do it um, with people of my generation in a research lab is not working. <clears throat> but uh, Antoine, in your uh, previous book, about uh, outstanding companies in the emerging economy. Yeah. Is it five years ago or so? Then you told, uh, yeah. uh, told us how wonderful uh, companies that really were in emerging uh, right. uh, economies. I particularly remember Embraer in uh, uh, Brazil that you presented as the outstanding innovative uh, company and uh, producing all of these wonderful uh, airplanes competing with Boeing and um, Airbus. What yeah. has happened? No, Why it, isn't Embraer uh, uh, that great any longer and we have uh, sister companies of it? Yeah, Embraer is still a great company. Good. Uh, <laughs> and it still makes good airplanes and I fly them all the time. Yeah. Now, Brazil may have some problems at the moment, as you may have read in the newspaper. Uh, which means that there are some headwinds instead of tailwinds. So what has happened? Let me tell you, I, in my previous book, there were three points. One, the center of gravity is moving from the old economies to the new economies. I still believe that. Number two, it's not the American consumer that is king. It is the emerging consumer that is king. Still believe that. The third point was competitiveness is shifting to emerging markets. That's the part where, when I started to talk to businessmen in Asia, I started to think, this is no longer true. It's actually shifting back. Why? From, from cheap to smart. Mm -hmm. That is the difference. And you know, you remember what Pat Moynihan said? He said, we're all entitled to our own opinions. We're not entitled to our own facts. Facts changed. And uh, you're talking here about North, uh, Northern Europe, and uh, North America is pretty much one entity. Uh, <laughs> we're all Europeans. So, this we is the Atlantic <laughs> Council. <laughs> <laughs> so we are painfully aware of what is not working in um, Europe. I uh, checked it out. There are two uh, big scales uh, on measuring the outstanding universities, as I think you very rightly pointed out, that's uh, crucial. And, uh, of the 50 best universities in the world, according to the Shanghai list or according to the Times Higher Education list, uh, 30 are in the United States, uh, six or seven in Britain, and only four in the EU continental countries. And uh, uh, Lund is not quite there, but close to it's it. Uh, it's, uh, it's a good university. Yeah. Uh, you have uh, a couple of good universities in Holland, but uh, the good universities are in, uh, uh, on the continent in uh, Germany, France, Holland, and Sweden, and nothing else. Can you really make a good case? Isn't this mainly a North American story plus a few North European spots? I think Fred should answer that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well. There are also universities in, 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 in the United States, in, uh, in Batesville, uh, Mississippi, 
where General Electric uh, put his uh, research to, to new materials, because there is a small department in that, in that university that was uh, excellent in, in collaboration and excellent in, in their knowledge of new materials. So you can look to indexes, and indexes are, are measuring the whole standing of university. But if you look to special qualities, Batesville in Mississippi, Akron in uh, Ohio, uh, the, the, the Polytech uh, University in, in, in Albany, they are not, I think, on that list. Uh, there are universities in, uh, in, in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Germany, uh, in Stuttgart and in Aachen, a technical university, but not a technical university in Dresden. But uh, in that place, there is rapidly developing an ecosystem around uh, chips. And uh, so it is uh, one thing to look at those uh, statistics, but another thing when you go into the field and see what people make of their special qualities. And that's amazing. Mm -hmm. but and by the way, outside, you already mentioned 40. So there are only 10 left for the rest of the world. And, and, and that's why we made the point, it's really um, world-class universities are really important. And it's an enormous advantage when you try to be smart rather than cheap. Mm. I, I totally agree on this, and I mm -hmm. think with regard to China, that's, uh, they have lots of patents mm -hmm. and they have lots of academic articles mm -hmm. about uh, the question, uh, if you check the quality of the best exactly. universities, mm -hmm. they, they are not, uh, mm -hmm. not there. Mm -hmm. But over to the role of uh, the state, mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's uh, frequently said that the problem with uh, European venture capital is not only that it's small, but with 40% of its, its state control. Mm -hmm. So that uh, venture capital in Europe is not prepared to take risks. It's uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, contaminate or contained uh, by the state. But on the other hand, you have the argument here with regard to the United States that uh, DARPA, the uh, Pentagon exactly. program, is uh, very much leading to the top uh, research. Mm -hmm. Can you make sense of the role of the state as a providing uh, support for innovation, and uh, what is the right role of uh, the state and what can actually be done there? Let, let me first say that, that what we are talking about is mostly a bottom-up phenomenon. Why? Because basically people gave up on Washington. Now, whether that was justified or not, I don't know. Let me give you two examples. All of what we describe, at least the US part of it, all of what we describe, and you're in Washington here, and what I'm going to tell you now, you probably did not know, was only possible because of Washington. You say, why? Well, 1980, there was a then bipartisan act, the Bayh-Dole Act, that allowed for the first time, you know, very few people know, for the first time it allowed uh, basically, universities and researchers to profit from federalism. Brilliant. By the way, the Chinese just sent out a whole team mm -hmm. from CCTV to interview these people. They, they're getting it. Mm -hmm. So that was immensely important. Why do we have Google? Do you know why we have Google? We have Google because 
you had the National Science Foundation grant of $800,000 to Stanford. They didn't know what to do with it. Gave it to Sergey Brin and uh, what's his name? Page. Uh, Page. And they figured it out. And that became Google. You know, now the government was stupid. They should have taken a small percentage, but they are not very businesslike. <laughs> so actually, the top down is important. The basic research is critical. Let's not forget, we got to the moon because everyone worked together. Uh, and DARPA uh, 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 and uh, RPAE, et cetera, are incredibly important and innovative now for Europe. No, I want to come back on, uh, on the United States. Uh, as <laughs> an outsider, I, I had also this, this, this impression, you, 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 your question is the impression I had when I entered the United States. Well, it's such a heated debate on, on uh, uh, market-oriented policies and, 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 and the role of the, the state that uh, I was surprised when, uh, when we came in Albany and in Ohio and in North Carolina that, uh, and also in Portland, Oregon, that uh, the initiative push, financial push, came from those governors. And uh, so I, I don't understand that whole debate here. It's, 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 there is on a, on, a, on a political level, national level, is there a political debate, and people on the ground are uh, acting uh, the opposite. And uh, a major difference between the United States and, and Europe, I think, is not only that uh, the uh, re innovation and, 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 and the venture capital is, is state-funded, but also that uh, the research institutions, like the Fraunhofer institutions in Germany and TNO, uh, uh, Public Applied Research Institute and, and, and uh, Research Institute in Switzerland, is unknown here in the United States. And uh, it is a very helpful. In Europe, we think that we are fragmented and that we don't can generate power. But the, uh, the national research centers, in this case, that collaboration from the bottom up, is a very helpful instrument. Because it, it <coughs> is the infrastructure in Germany or in, 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 in Switzerland and in Holland that makes it possible to uh, apply research directly to medium and small-sized uh, small companies, but also to uh, larger companies. So there is a whole new uh, ecosystem, a whole new network uh, uh, growing in, in, in Europe. And to come back to your earlier question about Europe versus the United States, we had this interesting experience with our editor, who at some point said, well, I'm reading here, you're talking all the time about Holland, you know, I mean, Holland is so good in, in smart farming. We said, well, yeah, it is. Well, the, 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 the discussion started also with you. you could, I said, well, Holland is the second exporter of agriculture products in the world. Time. Number one is the United States. Uh, but uh, Holland uh, has uh, almost 8% uh, of the world exports is, is coming from Holland. And they, they didn't believe it. I'm not so good in statistics, but it's, 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 it's just their fact. And uh, they asked me, yeah, but how is that possible? I said, well, uh, it's, it's, it's highly technical, close co cooperation between a university uh, with uh, farmers who are very well organized, uh, greenhouses, 
that are not so known elsewhere, but they are invented in, 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 in the Netherlands and are uh, producing, because they are closed uh, warehouse now, 9% of Dutch electricity. Because they have a very unique system of you save the heat in, 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 in bunkers, and it is highly technical. I don't know the, the, the specifics, but it's very well organized, have a good marketing, highly technological. And that's why a small country like Holland, uh, I don't know, I, can, I can't compare the size of Holland with something here in it's the United tiny, States. Tiny, it's tiny, tiny. Very like tiny country. <laughs> small than Connecticut. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Is, is the second exporter. It's yeah, but to continue on Europe, you have a few spots, uh, a little bit of Sweden, a little bit of Finland, Estonia is uh, an art group of uh, Nokia, uh, subcontracting, mm. uh, Germany is uh, decent, uh, Denmark, uh, uh, Holland, the British Isles, mm -hmm. you had a couple of spots I was surprised in France, mm -hmm. and then uh, Italy in the south is completely black, mm -hmm. and uh, apart from Estonia and Slovenia in Eastern Europe, mm -hmm. it's completely uh, black. Mm -hmm. yeah. What do you do about this? Um, or is it just falling down? I, I think that in the, in the, in the, in the middle, middle European countries is, is uh, the, the, the space of economic development. They, they come from communist regimes and they, they have to make up uh, the, 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 they are still growing very rapidly. In Southern Europe, there is another problem and that's very bu bureaucratic. It's uh, that uh, um, uh, one professor in, in Switzerland told me that there is a European initiative to, uh, to, uh, to, to get uh, universities from different uh, countries work together on life sciences and uh, uh, molecular biology, and that is uh, Zurich, uh, that's Oxford in Great Britain, that's uh, Leiden in, in, in Holland, and it's Barcelona. And he was complaining, if you, if you have a meeting with your colleagues from England and, 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 and Holland, there are two or three representatives, and they know what it's all about. And you have a high quality discussion. If you go to Barcelona, you have a meeting, there are 20 people. And most of them don't know what it's all about. But it's, 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 it's a part of their culture that everybody is involved. And that slows the process. And mm. I think that that's the problem for, for Spain and for uh, Italy. <clears throat> And when, uh, Fred uh, touched upon it in the beginning, your uh, old thesis dealing with the emerging economies was that we are seeing a big convergence. Effectively in this book, you seem to say we are seeing uh, divergence, brain power matter, cheap labor doesn't, therefore the cheap labor will not be better off, as Lester Tharo uh, put it, third world education gives the third world uh, uh, wages. And uh, education then is becoming uh, ever uh, more important. And this means more inequality. Well, is this a, a correct understanding of your thesis? And what conclusions do you draw from that? Not quite. I mean, as I said, of the three major trends, mm. two are continuing. Mm. These countries are getting richer. Um, and they are getting more important. 
what is different is that we had this feeling for a while that they were eating our lunch. And that's no longer true. Uh, we actually have now found a creative response to uh, this competition. And that doesn't mean that um, nothing will happen outside. Basically, what will happen is that more things will be made. I, I cite socks and, and shoes close to the consumer. More food will be produced close to the consumer. It, now, there are a lot of consumers in China, so that doesn't mean there's nothing happening mm -hmm. there. It just means that it's no longer the manufacturing center. It's more spread out. And um, we should not think that the old economies cannot compete anymore because the innovation is something we continue to be very strong at. Now, in terms of inequality, I think we have had a period of dramatic job losses in the United States, particularly in manufacturing. I would say people who are focused on that are focusing on the wrong issue. The problem is going to be manufacturing job losses in emerging markets. We are going to have some job losses in services because all of this is, is competing with that. That is an issue. But a more important issue is, and this is the, I would say, the Trump issue. There is a lot of anger in this country, frankly, very justified anger. Because why? There is a job mismatch. It's not that there are no new jobs that are being created. It's just that, that people with old skills couldn't get those jobs. That's where the job training comes in. And it doesn't solve all of the problems, but it can help solve some of the, of, of, of the problems that are created by this, but not all. <laughs> it, it, let me move then to uh, a trade policy. Uh, you seem mm -hmm. not really to deal with trade policy, but what does your uh, uh, thesis mean for a trade policy? Is uh, it's becoming less important when it's more a matter of brain power and intellectual property and less about moving product? I have a very strong opinion on this. And that is that, uh, you know, when it comes to immigration and trade policy, and they're connected, uh, people who don't like immigration are essentially protectionist. And uh, people who don't like trade are essentially protectionist. Now, I think that protectionism is a form of laziness. Let me say it clearly and loudly. Uh, if you are not willing to compete, in the end you will die. Frankly, my belief is that the fact that we had the emerging markets challenge in the 80s, the 90s, and uh, particularly in the, in the first uh, 10 years of this year, I mean, this may sound very counterintuitive, is the best thing that ever happened to us. Why? If we hadn't had that, we now had to deal with automation and all of these productivity increases, and we would be toast because we would be ready for it. Now we, we, we made the economy leaner, we made it more efficient, we started to be smarter, and now we're ready. So actually, this is not a bad thing. Now, when it comes to, to trade policy, globalization, I have, again, a controversial view, and that is, Basically, globalization has peaked. It's no longer growing. It has peaked, particularly mm. physical uh, globalization. And this is, by the way, overturning a dogma that I believed in my whole life. 
that has been at the basis of my career. Why? When you look at the trade. Trade is no longer growing. Why? Because people are producing more and more close to home. The old outsourcing model isn't working as well anymore. And the other reason is cybersecurity. Uh, I don't like walls, but you know, you cannot have the, 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 the totally free exchange of information that is part of globalization is going to be under challenge. So that's why. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> governance is lying here underneath all the time. And the question is, uh, is the problem with the emerging economies as it was in the 80s and 90s, that they have bad governance? We had two decades of the emerging economies just growing 3.5% a year on average, just like the United States at the time. And then we had the long first decade of this millennium when the US only grew by 2% a year and the emerging economies for 13 long years grew by an average of 6% a year. Are we seeing these long cycles, the commodity cycle, boasted the emerging economies, and also that they had gone through a substantial crisis. We are now seeing in Latin America that, for example, Argentina finally seems to be making a, a big turn. The former Soviet Union, we are seeing going into a deep crisis, and the Middle East in a frightful crisis. Are we seeing a repetition of the 1980s and 1990s when the emerging economies have to reshape themselves to come back, or is this really a long trend that you are suggesting? Yeah. You know, I, I think that there are more headwinds and fewer tailwinds in emerging markets, and for us, the other way around. The, um, there are issues on governance. Uh, first of all, uh, essentially, emerging markets took a free ride on the environment. And chickens are coming home to roost. Mm -hmm. And by the way, chickens are coming home to roost is one of my favorite expressions. Because it, it, it always happens, whether it was the crisis in 2008, which was our chickens coming home to roost, and now in emerging markets where, where you find uh, some of these issues. And the second is corruption. If you think we have corruption, huh, uh, that, that's a real problem, and, and that's a governance issue. And, and uh, that is something that they need to deal with. And the third is, is not, it, it's not a, an issue of their making, but it's still a real issue, which is the quality of education. Mm. Those three things. Mm. And they're related to governance, and they're related to development, mm. need major fixing. Mm. No, I, no, I don't want to add, uh, I, I want to switch to the topic that's uh, not uh, uh, developed countries and underdeveloped countries, but more the trade negotiation between Europe and the United States. And uh, so, uh, a couple of days ago, someone asked me what, what the, the, the brain belt development you describe, how is that? influenced by the negotiations between the United States and, uh, and, 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 and Europe. And uh, I, I, I was surprised by that question because when I traveled through the uh, United States and through uh, Europe, we found no differences. The cultures were, were the same. And, mm. uh, but if you see the discussion on a uh, supranational level, 
between those uh, continents, then it's about uh, cultural differences. Are you rule-based or principle-based? And I think that the United States is more rule-based, it's more uh, uh, I, an I sue you uh, culture. And in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the European countries, it's more a principle, more a handshake uh, culture. And uh, so if you look at the brain belts, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a handshake culture. In Portland, uh, Intel and the academic hospitals started an intensive collaboration, and they didn't sign a contract because they couldn't figure out how you gave numbers to that uh, co collaboration. But they started anyway. It's unique. But that's happening on the floor. But you see that on a national level, the lobby is so strong to uh, keep that uh, rule-based system alive. So many people earn their living with it. And in Europe, they are afraid that this whole rule-based system will, uh, will invade Europe and uh, people in, 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 in Europe and small and medium-sized companies will be sued. And that's not what we want. So that's a big problem, a big, an issue, a challenge. Sure, sure. Yeah. I'll uh, open up uh, uh, to, uh, to the floor. I think you had a question or a comment. <laughs> yeah, you will get a microphone. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Paolo von Schirach. I'm the president of the Global Policy Institute and editor of the Schirach Report. Thank you so much. Really, thank you. This is an enlightening you know, new approach to what uh, you know, somebody, some, many commentators have said, you know, this is the, the sad story of the decline of the West. You know, we, we, we had it, it's gone, etc. So thank you so much for shedding light, a positive light, a constructive light on, on the new things that are happening. Let me just ask you a question, uh, however. The problem here is that assuming that all this is true, and it's absolutely true, and I, for one, I have experienced a little bit of this in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, yeah. which is another example yeah. of a- mm. It's in the book. Yeah. With a sort of re reborn city that from steel mills that are no longer there, now it's healthcare and you know technology and other things, and and uh, so I said it proves your point. However, here's the here's my my concern. This new collaborative economies and all these things, the universities, the, the new companies, the new ideas, etc. Unfortunately, at least at, at this point, involve very few people. In other words, you talk about maybe an inversion points in manufacturing. But it's not going to be, we're not going to go back to Detroit, you know, 1970s and 1980s. Mass manufacturing is done. We're finished with that. So here's the thing. This new economy, this new, the, the rebirth of the, of the Rust Belt will involve, unfortunately, a very limited number of people. Because you need very smart, educated, highly competent people who are really with it, with the collaborative environments that you so aptly described. What about everybody else? We are in the United States now. We have de facto developed a two-tier economy. Yeah. Essentially, there are those who are educated, mm -hmm. clever, capable, 
and who may plug into the environments that you gentlemen have correctly explained to us. And maybe, you know, in Europe to a lesser extent, but it's the same thing. What about everybody else? The people who are dependent on a failing public education system have no hope of plugging into this. They may be beneficiaries to some extent of some of the products of these new economies. They, they may be buyers, but not participants. So here's, here's the problem. It's the How critical question. Thank you. And, you know, in essence, in the end, it's a political rather than an economic question. But, but let me try to address it from the economic point of view for a second. I think Dave wants your microphone. <laughs> um, first of all, we lost 7 million jobs. We now have 10 million jobs. I mean, this is not chicken feed. We have 10 million high-tech jobs now. That's big. We gained, during the same period that we lost 7, 4.4 million in high-tech jobs. And we don't count them in manufacturing because it's something else. It's this new branch of the economy. But they're there. So there's real job creation. There's job creation for those with skills. By the way, not just college education skills. We have had a college obsession in this country. And, uh, but half of those jobs, according to Brookings, are actually in, in people with post-secondary jobs. So that, those are still good jobs. Now, there's an economist at Berkeley, Enrico Moretti, uh, who wrote a book, The New Geography of Jobs, which I recommend. It's very good reading. He did research that showed that for each high-tech job, we create five other jobs, half of which are good jobs. This is yoga instructor and up. Uh, <laughs> and half of the jobs are not good jobs. But that's still half, two and a half good jobs. And for every, in, for every manufacturing job that disappears, we lose 1.6 jobs elsewhere. So the multiplier effect is actually positive. Um, and the biggest problem, I think, is going to be that you know, once these, these more new jobs are coming in, is this, this skill mismatch and, and, um, or job mismatch and the lack of skills. You know, the number that I've seen 2020 is 5 million jobs. We have a real problem here. So, uh, now, that does not solve the problem of inequality. It does not solve the problem of those who <clears throat> won't have jobs. For that, you need political solutions, which in Europe they're better at. Well, they're at least different. Uh, and and uh, because uh, in Europe, uh, solidarity is organized in our culture. And, uh, the, so you, you pay taxes, you pay uh, insurance premiums uh, to, um, to make a network of, um, uh, of, of assistance possible. Uh, but uh, even, even then, uh, you see that a growing group of people uh, are, le are, are left behind. And that's, a, that's, that's a, a growing group, even in, in Europe. People who are uh, less educated, who are uh, out of a job for a long time, so they, they, they are missing the discipline and, and the expectation to, to, to be in a, in, in a social environment. Uh, 
they um, uh, more and more they come from uh, broken families uh, uh, with uh, violence and abuse, and uh, so it's that's a growing group, and uh, that's a problem. Another aspect of what we describe is that we describe uh, a new world that is and a new economy that is developing through the uh, things we see now, but the new technology will make it possible to create a completely new uh, infrastructure, infrastructure in terms of healthcare. Uh, if uh, you are uh, a growing number of people, especially elderly people, have chronic diseases, and uh, you won't hospitalize them all, so you have sensors to follow them on a distance. But between the doctor and the patient, there is a whole new group of, 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 of people who, uh, are, uh, who, who are going to work in that, in that healthcare sector. And that's not giving care to people. Uh, that's, uh, that's not learned by training, partly, but it's also a, a, a human quality, capacity. So I think that uh, are we prepared to pay for that kind of jobs? And uh, in Holland it's more institutionalized uh, by uh, government regulation. In the United States it's more uh, uh, voluntary. Philanthropy, uh, the, 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 the markets are doing it, and, and, and that's a big difference. I don't necessarily believe in trickling down but I do believe that economies are very adaptable. Think of, you know, we had hundreds of thousands of telephone operators, secretaries, uh, elevator operators, typists. I mean, you name it. They, all of these jobs have been so... Now, will it solve all the problems? Absolutely not. But, but economies are adaptable. So. Yes, please. Microphone is coming. Thank you very much, um, Adolfo Chiri from Cambridge Insight. Uh, I want to thank you for your presentation. It was uh, really very enlightening. Uh, however, I have two quick questions um, that call my attention. You are absolutely right when you say the politician thinks that the United States is in decline, and you say the United States is not lacking competitiveness. Right. Uh, when you are talking about competitiveness at the corporation level, company level, is very easy to measure. But when you talk about countries, I don't know how you conceptualize the definition of competitiveness and the measurement of competitiveness. So I, I think we need to be clear in that in order to understand your framework. The other issue that I found interesting, I find very similar your approach to the concept of cluster of innovation industrial clusters, right. which is exactly the same thing. There are places in which there are. So exactly, I, I would like to know what's the difference. What's your, 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 your contribution to this discussion coming from the times of Marshall, when he talked about the industrial districts, you know? Um, what really we need to, to add to this discussion in terms of, of new thoughts, new ideas to let us understand that? Yeah. Why don't you take the cluster? What, what we write about those, those uh, hotspots of innovation that are clusters, but not the clusters Mr. Porter uh, wrote about. That was more from an efficiency point of view, that you bring the whole supply chain 
of a certain group together. Uh, uh, aeronautics, uh, car mating, uh, you have to put them together. Uh, what we uh, describe is that uh, the people I spoke in, 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 in Europe, uh, dozens of chief technology officers, and again and again they said to me, we can't do technology and turn them into commercial products on our own. They are too complex and they are too expensive to do it on your own. So we need others to collaborate with. And that's different. So it's not uh, out of an efficiency that you uh, cluster, but it is out of a need that you cluster. You have to work closely together with a university or with your supplier in the supply chain and turn that supply chain <coughs> into a value chain. That's what's happening. That's the difference. Now, there are various kind of well-worked-out measures of competitiveness that, by the way, follow more or less what we say. Uh, World Economic Forum, others have, to, have developed those. And they show time after time again that, that the US and, and, and Northern Europe, Singapore also, uh, are you know, quite high on, on that list. Um, to me, competitiveness in the end of a nation, not of a company, is in the end built on innovation. And what we try to show is that we are at a at the cusp of a whole new surge of innovation, whether it is in robotics or in 3D printing or in new drugs or in sensors or in new materials. If you look at the patents, if you look at where things are really happening and where um, basically a lot of the people who work on, on this live, it happens to be the United States and Northern Europe. And that is what gives us hope. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, James saying, Antoine, in, his, um, in your view graphs, you've put uh, world-class universities is very important in this process. Sorry, what? World-class, in, in your view graph, you as to what you need to have this yeah. synergies go, right. world-class university. On the other hand, Trent was a little more nuanced. He said basically a, a strong department. And I'd like to see how you guys parse it because Creating a world-class university, you know, an oligarch can say, I want to have a world-class university, and 20 years later, he has nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, a very strong-minded department chair can create a very good department, mm -hmm. but uh, if he gets hired away by some other school, quite mm -hmm. often the department falls apart. And I suspect that what you're talking about, Fred, a department that is there for five years doesn't have much impact on, uh, on let a me, local let industry. Me, let me give you an example of, uh, you, sorry, I interrupt you, but are you finished? Yeah, that's yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, let me give you an example of the technical university in Eindhoven. And uh, what Eindhoven. It's Sorry? It's a world class university. I don't. It's has great It's not a department. No, 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 but there are. What I want to, what, what I want to say is that uh, it's, 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 it's world class in, in chemistry, in, in, uh, in physics. In physics in mechatronics. And that last thing is, is, is remarkable because um, uh, they, they were a, a rather siloed uh, university, like all the universities, with all their departments. And what they did is that they, uh, about 15 years ago, they went to the companies, the surrounding companies, 
in that supply chain from Philips and from, uh, from FAI and from uh, ASML. And they asked the companies uh, what, what skills do our students need uh, the coming five to six years. And uh, they used this result of this, those interviews to restructure their departments to who are multidisciplinary uh, collaborations. And uh, that's what I meant with certain, certain departments within university that are broken open. And uh, um, so I think that uh, whether it lasts for five years or 10 years, the way you can uh, uh, focus on the needs in your direct uh, environment, that's important. We said um, research universities with world-class expertise, not necessarily a department. In fact, I don't know what I gave that example. Shirley Jackson of, of Rensselaer once told me, she said, you know, there is no such thing anymore as invention within academic departments. It's all between academic departments. So it is developing a world-class expertise on, you know, a whole area. And that's where a number of universities are very good. And obviously, when you develop that, you attract more brain power to it. Mm -hmm. Talent it, it attracts talent. And lack of talent means people move away. You're absolutely right. But it does take a while. Oh, you don't do it overnight. That's what you know, uh, they've learned in various places that try to do it top down overnight. No, this is a process. Uh, we, uh, yeah, uh, let's uh, do this as the last uh, question. Yeah, so no, but please. Two quick ones. Um, my name is Gail Kitch. I'm on the board of the Women's Foreign Policy Group. First question, just quickly, rather than China, tell me about Germany, which used to be the place that did this supposedly, right? They were smart and innovative and whatever. Yeah. So I'd like to know what we know or don't know from they the still German. Do. Yeah, okay. So tell me about that in comparison, understand it. And two, the other thing is picking up on what you were having a conversation about. In some ways, it seems to me the conversation is not about, at least from the um, university standpoint, it's not so much about DC as it is, and you mentioned governors. It's really what's the tension between the public and the private, mm -hmm. that in fact in America, it's much more important to try to b rebuild support for public institutions and public higher ed, because where this game could be played best and most mm -hmm. effectively to reach the sort of larger group of folks we need to reach, it's gonna be with public institutions, but we have a thing here in America, with pri at least on the coast, with uh, private institutions, yeah, right? Absolutely. So in some ways, part of your conversation, which would be great, it would seem to me, because you do mention governors who get this, mm -hmm. would be to make the case for the importance of supporting public institutions mm -hmm. of higher ed, mm -hmm. too, right? Absolutely. Um, but on, on, on Germany, very briefly, I mean, let's not forget that Northern Europe has a, a, a a current account surplus that is twice as big as China. People just don't know that, but, but it, I mean, so they're doing something right, and it's led by manufacturing, and it's led by Germany, but it's not limited to Germany. And Germany does a number of things right. Fraunhofer, this exactly what you mean, this public-private um, cooperation, the, the um, uh, work-study programs, which are phenomenal. We have a lot to learn there. Um, the fact that there, you have, you know, you go into these factories. I mean, the difference between Trump or uh, 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 in, 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 in around Stuttgart and going into Boeing. My God, what a difference. I mean, there people are treated respectfully. 
Thank you very much, Fred and Antoine. We sign books outside. Yeah. yeah, we have a book here for sale outside, and both your office will sign. We have uh, some glasses of wine here for anybody.